Hello and welcome to episode 77, episode 77 of the Political Mike podcast. According to 538's polling averages this past summer, Republicans seem to have a very strong chance of flipping control of the House of Representatives, but everything changed after the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. The fate of the House likely rests on the outcome of roughly a dozen toss-up seats, such as Virginia's 2nd District and Pennsylvania's 7th District. The ultimate question to be answered is whether the polls will shift back towards Republicans as they have historically done when Democrats hold the presidency. My guest today is looking to defy the, the odds, according to history, and elect Democrats across the country to retain the majority. Mr. Jamie Harrison, the son of a single teenage mother, uh, was raised by his grandparents in Orangeburg, South Carolina. Mr. Harrison knows what it's like for a family to have to choose between paying the electric bill and putting food on the table, and what it feels like to go to sleep in a house with no heat because the power was shut off. Mr. Harrison was able to earn a scholarship to Yale University and attend Georgetown Law after college. He came back home to, to Orangeburg, South Carolina to teach at his old high school. Then he worked to help empower disadvantaged kids to attend college. Mr. Harrison also served as an aide to the legendary South Carolina Congressman Jim Clyburn. In 2013, Mr. Harrison was elected the first African-American chair of the South Carolina Democratic Party, a position he held until 2017 when he was appointed by DNC chair Tom Perez as an associate chair of the DNC. In 2020, Mr. Harrison ran for the United States Senate from South Carolina, building a national grassroots movement and setting a fundraising record for the, for the most raised by a Senate candidate. He and his wife, uh, Mary, Marie, I'm sorry, live in Columbia, South Carolina, where they raised their two young son, uh, sons. Mr. Harrison, thank you for being a part of the political mic. I'm so honored and grateful to have you uh, on the program. Well, thank you for reaching out and thank you for having me. So, Mr. Harrison, I want to ask, um, how optimistic are you about Democrats' chances of retaining the majority in the House and in the Senate this November? Well, as you know, DNC chair and when I was a state party chair, you don't play the, the, the role of a political pundit, right? You, you're not doing the horse race. But what I know is this. It is that we have the better, best candidates, that uh, a much better candidates in, than the Republican side, but some of the best candidates I've seen in a generation running this cycle. Uh, they have been out raising their opponents, uh, their Republican opponents. And the DNC has made sure that we have put more money on the ground uh, than any other uh, midterm election ever. And so uh, we're giving our candidates the best chance to win because you know, winning in these midterms are so crucial. They're so important, not only in terms of the horse race between Democrats and Republicans, but securing and protecting American democracy itself. So uh, I feel good about our chances in terms of keeping our majorities in the House and the Senate, uh, picking up some governor's mansions, but we got to do the work. We got to get the people out to the polls. And uh, in the end of the day, that's what all, all that matters. So this past March, uh, there were a number of articles that came out that showed that the Democratic National Committee and its joint fundraising arm racked up a record-breaking fundraising um, court um, uh, records to kick off the 2022 election cycle. Um, they brought in $16.8 million in March and more than $42 million um, during the past uh, three months, even as the party stares down a brutal midterm environment. And in your view, um, and of course, it's characterized as brutal by pundits and uh, those in the media because of inflation and, and um, I guess, the, the rise of gas prices. But of course, that's gone down. Uh, but then there's the fear of it going back up. But I want to ask you, Mr. Harrison, in, in terms of fundraising, 
Um, how do you feel about how the Democratic, the DNC has done fundraising wise? Um, now that we're in our final quarter, I believe we're in the final month of fundraising for the, Demo the DNC um, for this election cycle. Well, listen, I feel good about our fundraising here at the DNC. I have raised as DNC chair in the midterm more money than any other DNC chair has ever raised in the midterm. Uh, we have broke records in terms of our fundraising, uh, and a lot of it has been fueled by our grassroots fundraising efforts. Um, you know, the small dollars from you know the grandmas and the grandpas, the aunts and the uncles at five and ten dollars a pop. And so I feel really, really good about that. Uh, I'm proud of that. And equally, what we have done is we have taken those resources and we have put them on the ground. Uh, you know. In 2018, the DNC spent $30 million on, on efforts across all 50 states. We have already spent well over $70 million just on our fuel operations uh, in the states, uh, all 50 of them. So I feel really good about that, uh, uh, that, that effort. It shows a lot of energy and enthusiasm on our side. Uh, and I'm proud of the, the operation that we have built. So one of the uh, topics that a lot of the panelists who come on the program talk about is how the Democrats have seemed to struggle to um, increase the amount of support it gets among the Hispanics, Hispanic voters. Uh, the Democratic advantage among Latino voters has shrunk by half in the past decade, and that's according to an NBC News and Telemundo poll released uh, recently. 54% of Latino voters surveyed said that they prefer Democrats to be in charge of Congress compared with 33% who would prefer Republicans to be in charge of Congress. And that gap, now 21 points, um, was a 42-point difference in October of 2012. Um, now, I want to ask, because a lot of folks had said, you know, Hispanic voters are not a monolith. Uh, this is pertaining to the fact that Republicans seem to be successful in painting their Democratic opponents as uh, those who would be as close to socialist as you can in the United States. Um, how, do the de how does the Democratic Party and Democratic candidates uh, shake off that socialist label um, in order to be more successful in winning over um, Latino voters, in your view? Well, this is a thing that we need to understand, that the only, and I often say this, that the, the superpower of the Republican Party is fraud and fear. The superpower of the Democratic Party is hope. And any Republican making an attack calling the Democratic Party socialist is just straight out lying. Here's the truth. President Biden and Democrats have led our economic recovery out of the pandemic, and we have now one of the best job markets in history. Unemployment was at six, almost 7% when President Biden uh, took over. It's now at 3.5%, the lowest it's been in decades. We passed legislation that is going to lower prescription drugs and healthcare and utility costs, uh, make big corporations pay their fair share. And our party is fighting to protect and safeguard our democracy. And that includes the right to vote and to have free and fair elections. It also uh, includes the right to freedom, uh, that we believe that people should be able to control their own bodies. So, you know, in the meanwhile, we, we have these mega Republicans who are focused on putting forward an extreme agenda which puts special interests first, and it costs families so much. And they are, Republicans are all about power and control. It is, you know, they often like to say they're for freedom, but they're not because they want to have the power. They want to have the control to restrict people's freedoms as it relates to who they vote for, 
who they love, how they love, who they how they conduct themselves and identify themselves. Right. It, it should be up to individuals to, to decide that. And so uh, when we think about where the Democratic Party is, juxtaposed to the Republican Party, uh, when we think about the Latino community, the Democratic Party is fighting for the average Latino families across this country. We're not demonizing them. We're not using them as political pawns. We understand that they're not a monolith, but that they are individual communities that have uh, one commonality, which is that if you're here in this country, you want to make sure that you and your family in your community, uh, everyone in your community can live the American dream. That's what the Democrats fight for each and every day. And and so the Democrats have said, in my view, they've had a very successful legislative um, record uh, since taking office uh, these past two years. Um, on the other hand, as you pointed out, the Republicans have offered very little in subs in terms of substance of what they plan to do when they do, if they are allowed to take the majority in either one of the chambers of Congress or both chambers of Congress. Um, when I was looking at a 538 generic ballot, it actually had, as of today, Democrats up 45.7% in terms of who's more likely to take control of Congress, Republicans at 44.7%. It's always seeming to be so close, this, this election cycle, despite the fact that the Republicans have not put forward any kind of substantive proposals. I believe Mitch McConnell even said, we'll talk about that after the election when asked what they plan to do. Um, even when you go back to 2020, there was no Republican platform. You know, there was, so exactly right. why is it that this race is so close when the Democrats have delivered mostly popular when you're talking about the Inflation Reduction Act, the gun bill that was passed this, this past summer, uh, the CHIPS Act, the PACT Act, uh, going back to last year, the infl the uh, bipartisan infrastructure deal. Um, why is it that despite these legislative victories that seem to be popular among most Americans, the polling between Republicans and Democrats are so close in your view? Well, I think one of the things you also have to understand is the historical perspective. We know that the party that is in the White House in the midterm elections tend not to do as well. And so when you think about how well Democrats are actually doing right now, given that history, we're actually overperforming what uh, historically what you never see. I mean, I, I've been through enough midterm elections when we've had the White House to know uh, that normally you don't see the Democratic Party actually pulling ahead in terms of the head-to-head -head generic uh, battle in the midterm when we've had the White House. You don't see that. You, didn't see that much with the Republicans uh, when they had the White House. And so we are we're doing well because we have delivered. You know, the president and the vice president and Democrats in the House and Senate made a lot of promises on the campaign trail in 2020. And when you think about what we have been able to do and achieve with and I, and I think I mean, you can say it even without any uh, caveats. But when you even put it in this light, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris. 50-50 United States Senate, 50-50 on a good day, right? Uh, in the House, less than a five-seat majority there. And they have passed probably more monumental legislation in a less than two-year period than any president and vice president in the history of this nation. From the American Rescue Plan, where we put money in pockets, shots in arms, uh, uh, kept people in their jobs, kids going back in, into school, uh, we saved historically black colleges and universities through the investments there. We saved a lot of businesses, particularly in the black and brown communities, through the revamped PPP loans, saved the pensions for a lot of folks, the infrastructure law, the CHIPS Act, the PACT Act, the 
Uh, gun safety legislation, first in this kind in 30 years. Um, the Inflation Reduction Act, more black women uh, on the appeals court than all presidents combined. Uh, the first black woman on the United States Supreme Court, lowest unemployment in 50 years. I mean, I can go on and on and on. And we did that with a 50-50 United States Senate and less than a five-seat majority in, in the House. And so there's a lot of good stuff. And you mentioned this, the Republicans don't have a platform. Now, when they do release things that they want to do, it's talking about gutting Medicare and Social Security, um, putting that on the chopping block every five years. They're talking about a national abortion ban. They're talking about raising taxes on working and low-income people in this country. That is their agenda. It's radical. It is, it, it is extreme. And it's important for us to make sure that we are letting the American people know what they're trying to do. Uh, and I think when the American people know it, they won't vote for it. So I was watching the uh, Ohio Senate debate this past Monday, and I thought it was a very e excellent uh, uh, debate uh, because it was you were able to see two candidates, one representing uh, the Republican Party as it is in the image of Donald Trump in the form of J.D. Vance. And then you've had Tim Ryan, who knows how to speak the language of the blue collar uh, Midwest voter. And I thought that Tim Ryan did an excellent job in, in you know, issue by issue, painting the contrast between he and his opponent. Um, and I thought, you know, this is the kind of guy that the Democrats need in the Senate. Um, in your view, you know, because you also have folks like Tim Ryan complaining that he's had to raise uh, a number a, amount of money on his own, um, and he wishes he had more uh, support. I've also had Dr. Will Boyd on the program, and he also expressed sentiment um, that he thinks that Alabama shouldn't be taken for granted. Do you think that the DNC has already seeded some races, like the Alabama Senate seat? That's between Boyd and Katie Britt and, and even the Ohio seat uh, so that it can focus and allocate more of its attention elsewhere, like in Val Deming's race against Marco Rubio? Well, I think it's it's important to step back and understand uh, the, the, the atmosphere. The first thing is the DNC doesn't see anything in terms of any races. We have been committed to a 50 state strategy and we're even investing in our Democrats who live abroad live in the territories or actually live over in Europe or in Asia uh, and Africa and other places. We are putting more money uh, in our, our state parties than we have ever had in the history of this party. I mean, dramatic increase, uh, almost 50% more money to state parties from the 2016 era uh, that we have seen. On average, 25% more than what they got in 2018. So, uh, again, as I said, we put $70 million on the ground, and that's across all of the country, not saying only we're only going to do these 10 states. That's all 50 states. So I'm proud of that. Now, it's also important to understand that the DNC does not fund individual campaigns. We don't fund uh, individual candidates. What we fund is the grassroots organizing component on the ground through state parties. Uh, there are other committees that work directly with campaigns and candidates. So, for instance, the DSEC works with Senate candidates, and that's an organization part of the Democrats who are in the Senate that they run. The DCCC works with the House candidates. The DGA, Demo uh, Democratic Governors Association, works with governor's candidates. And the, what the relationship with the DNC is, we play the backstop. We make sure that these, these states have functioning field programs 
where we work on voter protection. We work on voter outreach. We work on all of those things. In Ohio, which are, is a state, in Alabama, which are states that you talk about, we have increased the funding uh, at minimum by 25% to those individual states. Uh, just recently, we even allocated more money to Ohio to, to help uh, not only Tim and Nan Whaley, who's running for governor, but also on the congressional side. So we are not seeding. We're not picking winners and losers. Uh, what we're trying to do is to build the infrastructure so that all campaigns uh, have the bare minimum to be able to compete and ultimately so that they can win. So one thing that got a lot of attention uh, this past weekend was that Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama um, took the crime messaging that Republicans across the country have been weaving and doused it over, it seemed, in overt racism by, you know, saying that Democrats want crime. Um, he said, I've never seen, um, like, the crime in this country. We, we all grew up respecting the police, our moral values, doing what we could do to help law enforcement. He went on to say that the Democratic Party um, could stop this crime today. He went on to say that the Democratic Party wants crime. Um, and then he made the statement that um, they want to now support reparations for the folks who are doing the crime. And there was no other way to really interpret that. Um, in your view, oh, in my view, I think the Democratic Party could make the case that crime under pr former President Trump has actually increased um, and that they, they've actually seen a decrease in crime uh, since taking office this past these past two years. Um, in addition to the fact that you also have the same GOP calling to defund the FBI mm -hmm. after they raised a lot of hell for, you know, get for, for, for not the Democratic Party, but organizations like Black Lives Matter saying maybe we need to defund the police. Um, in your view, I mean, why aren't the Democrats attacking the GOP more aggressively on crime since, you know, it seems like it would be in their best interest to do so? Well, listen, uh, Mike, I think you hit the nail on the head. We cannot shy uh, from from this fight on, on crime in this country. Uh, and we know full well that the DNC, they like to give lip service that they support the police. But don't listen to what people say. Look at their actions. Right now, when Donald Trump was president of the United States, he cut funding for police in his budgets, cut funding for police in his budget. Uh, we saw what happened on January 6th, where men and women in the police forces, Capitol Hill police, along with the District of Columbia Peace police, were beaten. Some lost their lives. And what did the Republican Party do in order to, to lift them up to support them? Not much of anything. Actually, wouldn't even meet with some of them at times. And so, uh, and now in terms of the FBI, when the police aren't doing exactly what the Republicans want, they turn on them. Marjorie Taylor Greene has led the effort selling T-shirts saying defund the FBI, which is a part of law enforcement on, on a federal level. So these people don't, aren't for the police. What they are for is power and control. And as long as you allow them to have that, then, then that's what they're for. So Democrats have to move in. I mean, we have actually, we, the Democratic Party, increased funding for law enforcement and emergency services in this country through the American Rescue Plan. And guess what? Every single Republican voted no. Every single one of them. And so it's important that we set the record straight. And the president said it so clearly. You can't be pro-insurrection and then pro-police. You can't. Those two things cannot coexist. So when you cheer on and call, call those folks who stormed the Capitol patriots, same people who crushed members of the police department, who spat on them, who 
beat them with uh, flagpoles, uh, who defecated on the, the walls of the Capitol. You can't be pro-insurrection and pro-police. The Republican Party is pro-insurrection. And so we are going to make sure that we continue to lean, lean in. And I, and I encourage our candidates to lean in on this. Um, because in the end of the day, that everybody, regardless of who you are, want to live in a safe and secure uh, uh, community. And we want to make sure that our police are following the laws. We want to make sure that they're, they're protecting and serving. And that's important as well. And we'll hold them up to the standards of doing just that. So, uh, you know, don't, my message to Democrats, don't see an inch to the Republican Party on any of this because they don't, they really don't have a leg to stand on. Well, Mr. Harrison, it's been a privilege and honor. Thank you for making time to be on the political mic today. Um, now, for those who want to donate, could you just emphasize or, or you know, tell the folks who want to contribute in this last uh, fundraising cycle where they could go to donate to the DNC and to Democratic candidates? Well, folks, if you want to support our Democratic candidates, go to Democrats.org. Not only donations, but if you want to just do call time, if you want to send text messages, go to Democrats.org. I also encourage you, if you uh, are trying to figure out how to vote, where you need to go to vote, go to IWillVote.com. IWillVote.com to find out the latest information about what it takes in order to vote in these November elections. Thank you so much, Mr. Harrison. With that being said, I'm going to go ahead and conclude episode 77, episode 77 of the, of the Political Mike podcast. Thank you so much, Mr. Harrison. Thank you so much, Mike.